With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So this is a very special podcast for me. Um, it's the it's the fifth year anniversary since I published Choose Yourself, which totally changed my life in a variety of ways that I want to talk about. But first, the genesis of Choose Yourself. But well, there's a lot of places I could start. One is I self-published Choose Yourself, and I really went all out. Like I hired a designer. I did very special marketing for it, which I'm going to describe, because uh, I, I really it was important to me that people read this book, even at great personal cost to myself. It's also the first book I did an audio book for, uh, which I'll describe that in a second, and why that was a very interesting process for me. Um, but it was five years ago, and the book sold just as many com- copies last month as it did maybe in the fifth months after it came out. Like it's it's kind of the, one of these books that surprises me that people could very much relate to the message. And the primal message, which was so important to me in the many years before I wrote it, the primal message was that I had to stop depending on other people liking me in order to be successful. And that might mean a boss or an investor or a customer or a publisher because I wanted books to be published or a TV producer, like I have, so so Steve Cohen's yeah, here at the, in the podcast, to, just to chip in occasionally. But, <laughs> but we had Sheila Nevins on, for instance, terrific, yeah. who I love, and she 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 was for twenty years the head of documentaries at HBO. And back in nineteen ninety seven, I pitched her two shows, um, and I even went through the process of creating a pilot for one of those shows. And I remember, I felt like I did such a great job for this pilot, and we created, and it was with, I co-shot it with uh, uh, another podcast guest, John Albert, who we've had on the show, and we did, we went all out for like a year shooting this one pilot, and I remember just that, that feeling. And this is not Sheila's th- fault; it's just the way that industry was set up. HBO was the only place buying like these re- those kinds of shows. Um, like it was basically almost like a reality show meets documentary meets New York City nightlife. And Sheila and HBO were the only buyers of those that kind of material at that point. And so I remember just that sickening feeling. And again, this is not, has nothing to do with Sheila. It's just, again, the industry, that sickening feeling that I was dependent. I'd worked for years on this one idea. And I was dependent, after all that, I was dependent on one person to either validate it, say yes, 
or crush my dreams and say no. And for a variety of reasons, which she even admitted were mistakes uh, in our podcast, for a variety of reasons at that time, she said no. Now, you, you make the best of everything you could do. It was me feeling sick of that feeling in the TV industry that said, you know what, I'm going to leave HBO and start my own company. And that was my first company. And that led to a whole different path in my life as opposed to making how, TV shows. How long did you want to leave? You know, How long did it take you before you had the guts to really say, okay, this is a tipping point. I'm tired of having other gatekeepers and I really want to practice what I preach and take well, the leap. Well, it was it was a really long process because I didn't have. I'm not trying to advertise this book. I don't. I, you know, it's it's, it's actually it, my idea <laughs> to do the Choose Yourself podcast. But but uh, you know, it took a long time. I wish I had read this and said, "Oh, there's someone out there who's giving me permission that that this is a viable way to a viable path to success." But also, the technology wasn't like I could have maybe published that show on YouTube, you know, or episodes of that show on on YouTube. Now, you know, there wasn't that then. That said, I could have maybe been a little bit more clever of how I did it and I wasn't clever enough. But at the same time, on the side, while I was making that show and I was a full-time employee at HBO, I was also on the side building up my very first company to, and I was creating websites for other companies. So we did timewarner.com, we did americanexpress.com, the very first version of americanexpress.com. We did the very first timewarner.com, we did uh, miramax.com, rest in peace, uh, we did uh, New Line Cinema. We did the first websites for, well, we did the website for the Matrix movie. Uh, we did the Scream movies. We did a lot of record labels like Loud Records, which is the Wu-Tang Clan, Bad Boy Records, which was Puffy. Uh, we did Interscope, which had Death Row Records. So anyway, we were built, I was doing that on the side. And and I even had employees of my company, it was called Reset. And they would call me and they say, why are you? Why aren't you here full time? Like I would go, I would leave HBO at like five at night and stay till two in the morning at my company and then get back to HBO by by the morning. But it would have been much easier if I was full time. And I kept, you know, I kept saying as an excuse, well, look, I'm trying to manage the HBO relationship best if I'm on the inside. But really I was just hanging on to this dream that I could make a TV show with Sheila. And so again, I let the need for validation determine my entire life. Five years before that, I had written a couple of novels. And I I remember in 1992, this is related to HBO, HBO had offered me a job, but I said no, because I thought if I, I had, I was really insecure. I had no confidence in myself. I thought, you know, if I publish a novel, I can move to New York and work at HBO and be somebody instead of nobody. I could say, I'm the guy who wrote this novel. So I wrote, some novels that I really liked, and in retrospect, they're not so good. They were my very first attempts at writing back in 1992, 1991. And I sent out letters to publishers. There were like five or six main publishers, and I sent out to some small publishers. And again, I was dependent on a very small group of people saying yes to me. And I didn't, I just got form responses back because, you know, you really need an agent. Uh, so I would get just an assistant of an assistant writing a form letter back. So I sent it out to agents, but you know, because I was living in the middle of nowhere, no agent, and, and also because the books were bad, honestly, uh, no agent was responding to me, but I was always dependent on some kind of professional validation when it's so clear in retrospect that nobody knows anything. Like there's all these famous stories. JK Rowling was rejected 29 times for Harry Potter. So obviously nobody knew anything. John Grisham 
for his first book, A Time to Kill, uh, he was rejected everywhere until the firm. I mean, he he did it with a small press. He kind of vanity published it. Then he published The Firm, which became a huge hit, and then a movie. And then a publisher published his very first book, which is Time to Kill. Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City, that was his third book, I think, but his first wow. book published. And then he was able to finally get his first two published once his third, once he was a name with his third book. So Brad Meltzer says that he was rejected 26 times and he said there were only 24 publishers. So like two rejected him twice because, hey, just in case you, we really didn't like it. So like we're going right, to reject you twice. Right. So like in a please choose me yeah. world, uh, you're, I don't want to say you're dealing with, you know, there's an angry way to say it which is you're dealing with people who, well, what I just said, you're dealing with people who know nothing. I could have said it in a much worse way. Sure. But the reality is they're getting hundreds of thousands of submissions. They have no time. They'd rather get a submission from a name they know or an or you know agents take them out for lunch or they run into an author at a party. I mean, a lot of mediocre books are published by mainstream publishers because people yeah. are friends and that's how you network. Um, and, and a lot of good books get rejected because... It's more than just writing something. It's more than just creating a show. You kind of have to have a lot of skills of persuasion and yeah. and charisma and confidence and 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 stuff we've talked on many times on, on this podcast. And then and then even worse, I started my own company, which was good. It was a way of choosing myself. I left HBO. It was a way of choosing myself. Sold it. Made a lot of money. Lost all that money. It was horrific. Like I just. I was like a, a drunken rock star on steroids the way I spent and burned through millions of dollars. Like I should be ashamed of myself. It was so bad. I had, and I had so much regret and sorrow. Like, I mean, it's kind of a cliche to say I was suicidal, but there was a specific thing, which is my dad got sick. Uh, he had a stroke and there were, the doctors were all saying, um, the doctors were all saying that uh, he was brain dead inside but I could tell he was just sort of like moving as, I felt like he was responding to somehow in small ways physically to the conversation around him. And I researched and there was all these experimental things you could do with stroke victims that seemed like they were locked in, meaning they were conscious but couldn't move or they were paralyzed. But I couldn't, I was broke. I couldn't, I had $0 left and lost my house. I had to move, you know, out of New York City. Um, which is not the worst thing in the world, but I, I was forced to do it. I couldn't pay for this treatment that I felt could have helped my dad. And he ended up, uh, passing away and I could have helped my mom in different ways. Um, and, and then I switched industries completely because there was the whole internet sort of fell apart and, you know, from a business point of view. And I, I had tasted the pleasures of running my own business. So I didn't want to go back to not being in a more entrepreneurial setting. And it doesn't mean I wanted to run a company. I just wanted to be in an entrepreneurial setting. And I fell in love with investing actually um, and the hedge fund business. And you could only do things great if you truly love them. But what I did was I wrote, I also was a software engineer by background. So I wrote software to model the stock markets uh, and make the trades automatically. So it would take the emotion out of it for me. And this was another way I could choose myself was I'll just invest my own money in the stock market. I had very little. So when I was trying to survive and before I got rid of my house uh, in New York City, I had to literally make in the worst bear market at that time, 
I had to make a hundred percent a month just to survive. And then uh, So you think it was a question of like necessity is the mother of invention for you? Absolutely, because I was I had two kids running around like babies. And if I didn't do it, I don't know what I would have done. I well, I, I kind of suspect what I would have done. I had a huge life insurance policy and I would, you know, Alta Vista was the main search engine. I would Alta Vista, you know, best ways of finding out how to, you know, kill myself or whatever. And, you know, who knows if I would have gone through with it, but uh, I thought that that was a viable option while they were still babies. At least they would get, before they remembered me, at least they would get this huge life insurance policy, um, which is, a, you know, not the way I recommend someone chooses themselves at this point. <laughs> but uh, I thought that was like my, you know, when, when you feel depressed and suicidal, it's like a funnel. And at first, it's like you're kind of a, a marble rolling around a funnel. At first, it's a huge rim that you're rolling around, but then you start getting into the funnel until finally, you know, the the the, the boundaries gets tighter and tighter, and then there's just one way out. And that's what kind of getting suicidal ideation, as it's called, uh, feels like, is that you've kind of at the last part of this funnel where I felt I had no options. Now, fortunately, got rid of my house. Um, I lost a ton of money on it, but it gave me a little to survive a few months. And I moved way out of the city, like 80 miles north in the middle of a blizzard. Everybody in my family was unhappy at me at that point. And I couldn't figure out what to do next. But as I mentioned, I was I was trading. So I said, you know what I'm trading? Maybe I'll trade for other people. So I started to get involved in the hedge fund business. I had various hedge fund managers actually invest money. But you didn't really have a background in finance, right? I mean, I you were a computer programmer in, in college. And so- I had zero background in business, by the way, oh, yeah. because I made so many mistakes in my first company. Like I told you, we made websites for all these great brands. Like It was like we were an ad agency almost. But what I did was just as like to make the job, to make that business easy for me and my employees, I wrote all this software to build websites automatically for people. Sure. Which right now, you know, WordPress is a billion dollar, you know, is yeah. a, is a, is software to make uh, websites for people. My software was essentially at that time just as almost as powerful as what WordPress. I don't yeah. want to say it's as powerful as WordPress is now, but I even had an ability because we had clients, we could make these websites and then the clients could communicate like if they ever found an error they you know they would click through on every page like american express had hundreds of different pages so different groups within american express would like look at a page and say oh this is wrong and they would comment so they would comment on my software which was attached to the page and then emails would be sent to everybody in the right group for that page like it was really sophisticated software i should have called myself a product company and gone public like everyone else did Instead, we were a profitable company instead of a product company that I should have raised money. I didn't know anything about business. Yeah. All I knew was how to sell a service, and I did that very well. We had great clients, and then I sold the Why, business. How did you know how to sell? Because you are not even now. You're not incredibly extroverted, and then I can only imagine <laughs> going back that time. So. Why do you think you were able to do it? Because you, you, you're obviously a bright guy who had computer programming skills. And is it that you just built on what you already had and you got better? Well, well no, I mean, and, 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 and actually, you know, in, in the book, Choose Yourself, I kind of, so I'll answer your question, but in the book, Choose Yourself, I outline kind of all the things, skills you need to choose yourself. And one chapter is titled Becoming a Master Salesman. 
So I had never read a single book on sales. Like a lot of people read Zig Ziglar or other books on sales. I had never read a single book on sales, but I knew that if I was passionate about something, I could sell it. So if I walked into, you know, American Express, I could meet anybody from the CEO on down and say, listen, this thing you've never heard of, the World Wide Web and the, and the internet, everyone's going to, I was so passionate about it. Everyone's going to be using this within five to 10 years. Uh, uh, you should be the first out there to build a website. Soon all of your business will happen on the web instead of wherever you yeah. do it now. So not that I'm such a futurist. This was like the one vision yeah. I had. I went to, you know, when I went to grad school, the web just started, like the first web browser was released. So, and we were one of the first schools to use it. So I knew as soon as the web was released by Tim Berners-Lee, I was already had the skills to program on, on the web and, uh, which was built on top of the internet, of course. And, and I was addicted to it. I said, this is amazing that you could, I could link to, I could write one article that linked to other things, this yeah. hypertext thing and have graphics in it. And, uh, you know, it was a small community of developers. Then I was one of them and I just became passionate about it. So I was able to go to HBO and say, Hey, uh, you know, I ran their website. So, but the way I did that, they didn't even know what the web was. I said, look, eventually you're going to be streaming you you're building this whole interactive tv thing with time warner that's going to go away eventually you're just going to be streaming it using this new thing called the web on a web browser which is eventually what wow. happened and so they actually because of me they bought the domain name hbo.com they didn't own it wow um i don't know if you remember there was a company in atlanta called uh hbo medical supplies was a big company i forgot who bought them but uh, it wasn't um homeboys only <laughs> That was it. Straight at Compton, that group I, HBO. Yeah, I, it was yeah. in Atlanta, so yeah. who knows? But uh, 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 HBO and company, the medical supply company, owned HBO.com. We were HomeboxOffice.com, and so HBO spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen ninety five to buy HBO.com. Wow! And uh, uh, and then and then I built HBO.com, the very first one. But that's how I started my company. Is I hired my brother in law and and other people. We built HBO.com, and I sort of managed the process. And HBO for a while was our biggest client, but then we started getting all these other uh, enormous clients. But anyway, then I, I didn't know anything about business. This also shows you, you don't really need the traditional, you, know, you don't need an MBA to build a business. You don't need to read books on sales to be a salesperson if you're passionate about something. I'm sure I could have done things differently. Like I described to you before, I could have modeled my business differently. And so it would have had a different valuation. I didn't understand things like that. I didn't understand a lot of basic business concepts like valuation or marketing, but I understood how to sell something I was passionate about. And by the way, you shouldn't try to sell something you're not passionate about. Really the key is to be, if you're, when you're passionate about something, you'll know more nuances than the guy you're competing against who's not passionate. But do you, do you think like part of the reason why people feel like you need these kind of MBA or something is to keep people out of it, right? And I think yeah. that's one of the benefits of Choose Yourself, which, you know, I unabashedly think is an amazing book and I think it helps so many people and that's why I'm glad we're doing this. But I think that people feel like, oh, I need an MBA, I need this, I need I need to have a degree in master, uh, master's in writing to write a book or I need this. And it doesn't mean that you should be hubristic about it, but I think it means that you should feel like, no, I can do this right, too. Like, like short, uh, show me a best-selling novelist by best-selling, let's say someone who sold more than 10,000 copies who has an MFA. Actually, yeah. 10,000 copies, I could probably think of a couple, but 100,000 copies 
who has an MFA. I can't think of anybody. You know, and we've had a ton of writers on the show and yeah. we've had a ton of writers who've sold millions and millions of copies. None of their of their novels, none of them had MFAs. Right. Same thing with an MBA. I, you know, it's not like Jeff, well, I'd actually, I don't know about Jeff Bezos, but I don't think he has an MBA. Right. He was working in the hedge fund business, but he he, he didn't have an MBA. Um, Larry Page, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. you know, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college. Larry Page dropped out of graduate school. Uh, nobody has an MBA. Uh, maybe things would have been a little different, but when I was investing using software, I didn't know anything about the hedge fund business. I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know how to model a company. Um, I would say even now, I still don't know many of these things that you learn from MBAs, but I know how I, if, if a company's product and CEO excites me and it doesn't look like they're about to go out of business and they don't need a lot of money to stay in business, that's probably, and if I have co-investors who are smarter than me, it's probably a good business. Like if Warren Buffett was to say, Hey James, why don't you invest in this little company with me? I'm not going to, you, you don't argue with someone a thousand times smarter than you. You just say, okay, I'll put money in too. So my best angel investments, and this is skipping ahead many years, but, but I've made a lot of money from investing in private startups, but a hundred percent of the time I would fail if I was the only investor and a hundred percent of the time I would succeed enormously if someone much smarter than me was investing. So we've had Peter Thiel on the podcast. Peter Thiel, I've co-invested with on several occasions. He's, he was the first investor in Facebook. I wish I had invested in that, but um, I've followed him into a couple of things and they've always done amazingly well. And, and that type of story has really worked well for me, allowing me to choose myself in investing yeah. without getting an MBA in investing. And you know, I've read a lot of, I've read a thousand books on investing yeah. now. And I've invested in other hedge funds and interviewed other hedge fund managers when investing in them. So I've learned every investing strategy, but I learned from directly from them as opposed to being taught by a professor who didn't know anything. So I want to get back to like, so even in writing this book or adopting this kind of philosophy. And, and you know, the other day, I think this book has like become eponymous for a certain type of mindset and kind of sick, you know, like, you know, we talked about Freakonomics or Tipping Point or like where it becomes like, hey, what does it mean to be a choose-yourself person or what does it mean to be a no-limit person? And so I want to get back, like, what motivated you to actually spend the time to write a book? You weren't animated by like, oh, this is going to sell a million copies like it did. Right. Like you felt like this happened to me and I want to help other people. Right. So, I, uh, so I'll, I'll skip ahead because all the details are actually in the, in the book to some extent. But... um you know, again, I built up a business, sold it, and lost all my money again. So it happened to me twice. So clearly I was doing something wrong. Um, not, it wasn't like I was doing something wrong with investing or with business or with, uh, I don't know, my, my skills. Like I had, I had the skills to make money, but somehow personally I was falling apart every time I was close to, or I achieved some degree of success. And so so in addition to kind of these external ways of, uh, you know, not outsourcing your validation, yeah. you know, which, which, which we often do in every area of our life, there's internal ways, you know, that we need to improve to avoid outsourcing validation. Well, I'll, I'll quote from the book because I think this was something I really enjoyed where you said, um, 
Every time you say yes to something you don't want to do, this will happen. You will resent people. You will do a bad job. You will have less energy for the things you were doing a good job on. You will make less money, and yet another small percentage of your life will be used up, burned up, a smoke signal to the future saying, I did it again. And I also like in the book where you say the idea that we need to pay our dues is a lie told to us by people who wanted our efforts and labor on the cheap. So I think you and, and provide happens. a lot of value to people with that and inspiration. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's gonna be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Look, and I think society is set up to make you prove yourself to others who have got, come before you. Yeah. So, so the MBAs who run big companies want to see you get an MBA so that so that they could so that they feel validated that they got their MBA. Yeah. So you know because they're internally not choosing themselves, they didn't. They they. And I'm not saying an MBA is bad. I'm not saying anything's bad. It's just. You could, you can be a successful businessman. You can be successful at anything you want without the external validation. And uh, you know that first quote: whenever you say yes to something you really want to say no to, you'll resent yourself. You resent other people. You'll lose money. You'll lose a piece of yourself. Uh, there's so many times that happens to me. Like one time, I was going broke again, and I took a job at what's called a private equity firm. It's kind of an investing firm. And I had to travel from 80 miles north of the city down to 40 Wall Street, which is the Trump building on, on Wall Street. This is like in, uh, I want to say 2009 or 2000 something. And, uh, and, I, and I just hated it. And I, was t I remember one time I went to a meeting that I had set up with a bunch of Brazilian investors and how we were going to work on a project together. And I remember I was so bored and I didn't know how I was benefiting because I didn't, I didn't really ask about my compensation before I took this job. I was just so eager to like 
be at this firm. And I remember at one point in the meeting, I said, um, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. And I got up, uh, I had, I had my coat in my office and I even had my name on an office door and I had my coat in the office and some books there. I did, I went, I, I didn't go to my office. I just went to the elevator bank. I went all the way down. We were like on 60 floors up. I went all the way down and I took the subway to Grand Central. I took the train to Cold Spring, New York, where I lived at the time. And I never went back. Oh, wow. <laughs> like I, I, and, and this is my problem. I didn't even quit. Like they kept writing me for months afterwards. Oh, wow. Like, James, where are you? Because they appreciated some of the skills I brought to the table, wow. like software. And, you know, I had a certain amount of Kinda persuasiveness. Like and the opposite of the George Costanza where he just... Yeah, he got just, fired and he just showed up anyway. <laughs> which you know, by the way, is the is a true story about Larry David oh, and yeah. um Saturday Night Live. So so Lauren yeah. Michaels um didn't take a pit, uh, story idea from or a sketch idea from Larry David, and Larry David got so upset, he's like, I quit. And he walked out and then he regretted it over the weekend. <laughs> Everyone said, just show up on Monday, Valor. So he he stayed for the remainder of the season. They they didn't call him on it. But um, but yeah, I did the opposite of that. And they lived this firm literally called me for months like where are you don't worry <laughs> don't feel bad you could come back and i just never responded to them ever again like that was it and um but i felt just bad about doing something i didn't want to do like what i really wanted to do and then there was a period too where um the financial crisis was happening this was 2009 and i was there was a while this was before that job actually there was a while i was living on wall street um, on Broad, where the J old J.P. Morgan Bank was. Do you know, you know how in like 1921, the first terrorist attack on U.S. soil oh, happened wow. right at that corner, oh, wow. at that building. So I lived in that building, and it was right across the street from the New York Stock Exchange. And the financial crisis was happening, and I was going on CNBC a lot, and other and Fox Business, and uh, ABC, and other news channels, and I was extremely bullish. Like I was like, this is ridiculous. The market is is you know, so much money is being flooded into the economy from the bailout. Eventually, some of that money is going to find its way into the stock market. The stock market is a huge buy right now. I mean, the S&P was at between six and 700. I mean, it famously bottomed out at 666, and now it's around, you know, it's over 2,500 now. But CNBC and all the places I would normally publish, like the street.com, the Financial Times, CNBC, Forbes, they stopped calling me like so cnbc i lived right i lived right across the street from their studios in the new york stock exchange i used to go on i just used to just roll out of bed on tuesdays go across the street and go on aaron burnett's show and be bullish for five minutes and explain why everyone thought i was crazy even though i turned out to be correct and cnbc <laughs> suddenly just like i was blacklisted later on i went on you know much more but at that moment i was totally and why do you think so they just didn't subscribe to what you were. Well, everyone hated me. They were like, "This guy is so wrong." Like, oh, wow. everybody was saying, "You know, the capitalism is over. The world economy is upside down." I mean, I would. A friend of mine had a show uh, on Fox Business. I'd go visit him in his show. He he had his show out of a bar. I don't know if you remember the show ha Happy Hour. Yeah. And um, I would occasionally go on that show, but I would What's hear at the Cody? bar. Cody was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah Cody. Okay. Okay. Um And. I would be sitting at the bar just listening to people before I was going on the show and, and it was all these bankers at the bar wow. and they would all be saying, yeah, Goldman Sachs is about to declare bankruptcy and, you know, Citibank is going under and, you know, Walmart's going to go bankrupt and the American consumer is dead. Like unemployment's going to go to 20% again. Like everyone was just all these MBAs yeah, and wow. bankers 
were so bearish. And I, I, I don't know. I thought, I don't, I didn't even really doubt myself because, you know, we had just put a trillion and a half dollars into the economy. Well, like, we've had other crashes in 27 and 87. I mean, and it bounced back and I'm sure Warren Buffett and other real. Yeah. Warren Buffett had just invested like, a, so, I don't know, hundreds of millions in Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So it, it wasn't like, you know, and it's not, and we weren't, you know, the big argument against the bailout was, okay, we're going to experience inflation. Well, there was no inflation happening. Like there was zero inflation. So the only thing, something had to go up, had to be the stock market. And, and looking back, do you think this solidified your belief in yourself saying, you know what, all the cognoscenti and all these people over there, you know, they seem to have all the bona fides and- uh, Absolutely. But, it, but one formula always works is that I'll say something like I would say then, everyone would not only laugh and say I was wrong, but I don't know if it was because maybe I had like a weird look or something, but people would just hate me. Like I would get hate mail after those moments or or on Twitter, it would just be, oh, that idiot yeah. is on CNBC again. Why are they let that homeless guy on CNBC? Like, as I look like a homeless guy. There was a website I won't mention because they, they constantly trash me. There was a website that would just write article after article trashing but me. But you know what? It also says like we've said, like if you're a threat, you're a target. So you're threatening their beliefs in certain ways. So that's why, but I... Yeah, it's interesting. Well, even yeah. when in 2010, when the market was down 20% or 30%, I would go on CNBC because I was I was off the blacklist. I would go on CNBC again. And I would I remember I was debating Nouriel Roubini, who was a famous PhD economist called Dr. Doom. He was always bearish. And I was debating him. And I said, the market's going to go straight up from here. He said, the market's going another 20% down. That was the bottom. The market has never been that low again. And this was in the summer of 2010. Uh, I think it was literally July 5th, 2010. And, but I remember leaving CNBC and my mom called me and she said, maybe you shouldn't smile so much. Like so many people are upset and, you know, they're scared. And I'm like, yeah, they, but they should be, I'm optimistic. They should be happy. This is an opportunity. Yeah. And Noriel Rubini to this day, even though he was 100% wrong, he, I, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything about anybody. But uh, uh, so, but that I think did getting back to like it. I think it probably made you realize like okay, like William Goldman famously said, nobody knows anything. And, yeah. And but I think a lot of people it shows you also our cognitive biases and stuff, but also how you we see that in TV news today where people aren't looking for information; they're looking for affirmation or, or they're looking for entertainment. Or yeah, which is why most people say they get their news off the Daily Show. Oh, interesting. Um, but you know. I've been wrong about things too, but I was, I've been fortunate that I was r right, right to place my bets on the internet. I was right to um, that I thought the market was going to go up at the very bottom. I mean, I tell this story in the book, Choose Yourself. Uh, there was one day I was so, I could see, because I lived right across the street from the New York Stock Exchange, I could see all the traders were going to the New York Stock Exchange looking at the ground. They were all depressed, you know, because the market was like falling every day. And so I went and I bought like a bag of, couple bags of Hershey chocolates. And I just stood outside and I gave every trader walking into the New York Stock Exchange some chocolate because I realized chocolate, you know, yeah. there's scientific research that boosts your happiness and your risk-taking ability and so on. And it's not bragging if it's true. That was the bottom of the market <laughs> in 2009. It was March 9th, uh, wow. 2009, when the S&P hit 666. Wow. Uh, I'm not, I'm just wow. jokingly taking credit, but that was that day. But, um, but, but at some point... I got so sick of everybody rejecting me and making fun of me and whatever. And so a friend of mine, Tim Sykes, actually, who's, 
you know, I still work with to this day on, on different projects. Uh, he called me and he's like, you know, forget all those other, forget CNBC, forget all those other websites. Um, just do jamesaltucher.com. And I didn't even own jamesaltucher.com. In 2003, someone wrote me, like seven years earlier, someone had written me and said, um, I have a birthday gift for you. I bought jamesaltucher.com. Just give me a call and I'll give it to you. Wow. And uh, I never called him because I'm like, what am I going to use jamesaltucher.com for? But in, I think it was in 2009, actually, I finally returned his email and I said, okay, I'll take it now. And he wrote back and he said, that's the longest response <laughs> to an email. I've, uh, the longest delay in response to an email I've ever had, but sure, here it is. So I took jamesaltucher.com and Tim Sykes actually hosted it for me. And I just started writing my own stuff. And because I wasn't beholden to any giant media organization, I could write whatever I wanted. So instead of writing about finance, I just wrote all these stories of what had happened to me. Like I lost all my money. I was suicidal. I was depressed. I wrote story after story of all these like crazy experiences I had during those periods. Uh, I just wrote the most insane, like and the more what, insane, the better. And what, and what do you think motivated you to do that? Is it kind of like Janis Joplin, like freedom is knowing you have nothing left to lose? Yeah, it was like that. Like I already was kind of banned everywhere. Yeah. And also I was no longer writing finance books because my last finance book had blown up spectacularly. Like for some reason, um, the publisher who I won't name, um, decided to publish it in December, 2008. And I said, you know, <laughs> nobody's buying a book on how to buy stocks the same day that everybody is selling stocks. And so the book was horrible. Nope. And you're always as good as your last book with mainstream publishing. Yeah. So no one would publish my next, I couldn't get an age. My agent, I had to fire him because he just refused to market. Wow. You know, he, he actually did pitch my next book to people and they would reject him. And I would call him and I'd say, okay, so-and-so rejected you. But I remember one editor um, rejected him and, I, and I'm good friends now with this editor, but I'll just let her stay nameless. Um, <laughs> and she rejected him. And I said, listen, this book is perfect for her list. I match perfectly all the other books she's published in the past three to five yeah. years. And I said, so here's what you do. Call her up, ask her for lunch and say, I just want to know what we could have, what I could have done better in my pitch, what James could do better. And, you know, cause he's perfect for your list for these reasons. And so he said, okay. But then one minute later, he called me back and he started screaming at me. If you ever, ever, wow. ever tell me what to do again, don't ever call me again. So I hung up Yeah. and I never called him again. And then, and then I went to that editor Good for you. and I took her to lunch Wow. and she told me, this is what you need to do to change the pitch. And she then, wow. it was HarperCollins, they published my that's amazing. next book after that. And that's good. Like you didn't take no for an answer. And like I like to say, or we've heard, you know, don't take a no from somebody who can't give you a yes. And I just want to take a moment because like I read the book, obviously, and, and I love another quote of yours from the book um, is, your competition is not other people, but the time you kill, the ill will you create, the knowledge you neglect to learn, the connections you fail to build, the health you sacrifice along the way, your inability to generate ideas, the people around you who don't support and love your efforts and whatever got you, whatever God you curse for your bad luck. I mean, I love that. I right. think that's great. And because and, what I realized finally after so much failure and just dead broke, nobody would talk to me or give me a job. You know, I was just really 
down and out and living 80 miles north of New York City. So I just fell out of action. And that's when I started just writing for myself these incredibly insane stories about feeling suicidal and had nothing to do with finance or business or the economy. I was just storytelling. What I had started doing in 1991 when I was trying to write a novel, I went back to it in 2010, except I, was, I had all this material now, which is stories about myself, but they were people, I had already built up a following from the finance stuff. I mean, I had built a website that had millions of users. That's the one I sold to the street.com. It was called Stock Picker. And so I had, and I, people knew me from the television. So I had millions of kind of readers already, but my readers were like, has this guy lost his mind? Like I remember a year later, the, the, the then CEO of the street.com called me and said, I heard you had a heart attack and a stroke. Wow. And, or, yeah. or a mental breakdown. And no, no, I just started being totally honest. Like I would write these stories about just living this insane life, blowing all my money, um, uh, investing horribly. And other investors would kind of trash me on Twitter, but then they would privately write me and say, oh, wow. don't tell anyone this exact same thing happened to me. Thank you for writing that. Like wow, literally people who are still well-known yeah. on CNBC and like they're considered, you know, great talking heads. I shouldn't yeah. hold out CNBC. All the talking heads out there, almost all of them wrote to me and said, yeah, that happened to me also. Uh, but don't tell anyone. One of the things that I do like, like like one of the, some of the best writing advice I've heard for writers is when you write, be self-revelatory, but don't be self-absorbed. And you reveal a lot about yourself, but it's not in a way, it's in a way like, okay, like you can get something out of it. And maybe if you want to talk for a moment, because I've seen, I've seen it at events where hundreds of people will come up to you and say, wow, I really choose yourself, change my life. And, and that's one of the things that motivated me to want to work with you where you, you, that, you know, that gives you a sense of fulfillment to have people come up to you and say, Hey, I really helped you, you know, that, uh, your, oh, yeah. your hindsight became other people's foresight. Yeah. And you know, it's funny about the writing. I mean, I could talk all day about writing, but I remember a friend of mine was writing and he would try to be self-revelatory, but he would, could, he, he would say things like, you know, yeah, I was wrong on this, but I could make a, a six foot jump shot. You know, he was always like trying to balance the bad stuff with the good stuff. And I would tell him, you know what? Nobody wants to read the good stuff. Like no one cares yeah. that you could jump six feet. In fact, I have had people call me who read your stuff and say they don't believe you. So you've lost trust with the reader. Well, it's kind of like um, Kamal Ravikant, who you really helped and pushed him to write the great book, um, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depended On It, says, you know, you don't, nobody wants to hear about like your life on top of the mountain. They want to know like, how'd you get there? Yeah. And how'd and, you do it? Or how'd you fell off the mountain? Or because I think the average condition, whether you're poor or rich or wherever you are uh, in, in your career, uh, the average condition is you're feeling stuck and you want to figure out how to get unstuck. I think a hundred million people in this country yeah. feel that way. And I was really feeling that way. I had no idea what to do, but I always loved writing. So I started writing instead of short stories, I started taking experiences in my life and, and almost kind of writing them as if they were short stories. So like, I don't know, I'm going to find a random chapter. And while you're doing that, I want to ask you, like, were you really scared when to write some of this stuff? Like the first time you wrote something, 
where you were like, I'm going to tell people I wanted to kill myself. I'm going to tell people that, um, you know, what happened with my parents or the pain I experienced there or, you know, yeah, not being like, able to uh, buy diapers. Were you terrified to do uh, it? I was, yeah. I was always terrified. In fact, I had a rule for myself, which I still adhere to, which is I don't hit publish on something unless there's something in the article that I'm afraid people will see. So I always, as long as I'm afraid, that means other people will be like, I can't believe you said that. Even if it's just one little thing, if I'm yeah. pushing myself to be out of my comfort zone, then I know my writing will be different than everyone else's because most people don't want to go out of their comfort zone. And I know if I'm shocked about something I write, other people are going to be well, shocked. Like going on a limb because that's where the fruit is. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's totally yeah. right. And the, and the fruit in this case being people's attention and, and you know, maybe some creativity. So a combination of you get you be creative in a little way that feels uncomfortable and that's a way to catch people's attention. But I had friends calling me up like uh you, you know, are you do you have cancer? Like are you okay? Are you about to kill yourself? Cuz I was like revealing everything about divorce, losing money, you know, yeah. all the weird things that happen when you make money. Um I did an AMA on well the day I wrote published choose yourself, I did an AMA on Reddit which I think at the time was their biggest, AMA has asked me anything and you know you log on and anybody can ask you questions. I think it was the, at the time the biggest AMA they ever had. There were like thousands of people asking me questions about all, you know, because so many people were in, ha, have been and still are in similar situations. We're still in a society where society wants you to think you need to be chosen when the reality is you could choose yourself. Now on the quote you read, that is sort of the crux of the book, which is not, oh, you could start your own business or you could self-publish or you could just put your TV show on YouTube. The real crux of it is, is you have to have inside of you the ability to, to, to realize that choosing yourself is possible because you're at bottom. So you can't, and you're feeling horrible. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to put my TV show on YouTube because you're feeling so horrible about yourself. You can't do that. So I write in one of the first chapters about something I call the daily practice. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.